Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fucking knots? And uh, you what the fuckadelics? How are you? That's that is enough of those names for today. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Uh, welcome to my show. I'm, I'm why am I nervous? I'm just recording the intro to this show, and I'm getting all nervousy because today, as some of you know, is uh, is is the day. That I post my interview with Terry Gross. I know some of you heard the uh, NPR version. That's 45 minutes, beautifully edited. But uh, our version is the full expansive interview running almost 90 minutes of me and NPR's Fresh Air host, Terry Gross. The best interviewer in the country. The best. She's the best. And it was an honor for me to be able to interview her and, and to have that opportunity. And it was incredibly uh, exciting, but a little, a, a little nerve wracking, but ultimately one of the best live experiences I've ever had. We, we did this interview in front of probably about 2000 people at the Brooklyn Academy of Music at the Opera House. That is the Howard Gilman Opera House. And it was pretty incredible. I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Terry Gross. She is a, an amazing broadcaster. She's an amazing interviewer. Uh, she's compelling and um, intimidating in a way when you listen to her. But she's thorough and great and, and really is the most effective and, and beautiful interviewer of people on the planet. That's, and that's the truth. I don't know how much NPR uh, Fresh Air you listen to, but if you listen to it, she is one of the most comforting voices in the world, and you just can't stop listening to it. It feels like it's been part of my life, her voice, for like almost half my life. Anyway, I get a I get an opportunity to interview Terry Gross at this Radio Love Fest event. I didn't freak out, but it's tricky to interview somebody one-on-one -on -one in a live situation. How do you get a candid conversation? How is it going to, to work uh, with the audience sitting right there? But I got to be honest with you. I, I got to the, the, to the event. I met Terry, who I'd never met before. I'd never seen before. Really, I've seen a couple of pictures of her. I actually did a bit of research, but oddly, there's very little about her out there because that's the way she likes it which made it even more compelling to me, which means that, you know, I wasn't going to, if I heard anything that she had talked about before publicly, I would know exactly what it was. And I know all of it because there's so little of it out there. 
So as a conversation, uh, it was it was great because I knew exactly what was out there, all of it. And I didn't know how she would be. You know, she's a pro. And uh, I don't know if I'm a pro. I don't do it the same way she does. But I got to tell you, man and women, it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was a highlight. It was a highlight of the life, folks. I, I don't think I'd ever been funnier in a conversation than I was that night. I, I was very uh, respectful of Terry. I, I got a sense, you, you know, and it's hard when you're doing it in front of everybody. I, I knew where the sort of, I grew to learn where her personal parameters were. And, and when she meant that was it, that was it, you know, that, that we're not going to do anymore. I, can, I got a sense of her. Uh, and she, and we remained very connected and very focused throughout the entire conversation. And it was just, uh, it was mind-blowing. It was me interviewing the best interviewer there is. And, uh, and I had a great time, and I felt like we had a great talk. And it was sort of jarring for me to, you know, when you feel something needs to come to a close at the end of that, there were things coming out of my mouth that... I surprised myself. It not like I'm not I'm not blowing smoke up my own ass here. I'm just saying that that it was it was just so easy and so uh, effortless to to have a conversation with her, and then you know to feel uh, the 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 warmth and respect that was coming you know out of my heart at the end. There was a, uh, it was really overwhelming, and it was a, a very unique and singular experience. So I hope you enjoy this. It's sort of a big week in a couple ways because another interviewer is retiring who also had a profound effect on my life you can hear you know me talking to terry uh, and, and and engaging in that amazing conversation we had uh, and she is amazing and david letterman is also one of the the great broadcasters and interviewers and and i i certainly didn't have uh a one-on-one, -on -one, really that much of a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. But, you know, he changed my life. And, and I got to be honest with you. I watched a few of the episodes of him, the farewell episodes, which were touching. But for me, it's a very personal, weird experience to watch him go. And, and I haven't watched him as regularly as I used to. But when, when David Letterman came on the scene, you know, when his show started, it was, you know, I, I had to watch it. It was like he was the most abrasive, intense, hilarious person I'd ever seen on television. The, the thing of, of David Letterman was, was awe-inspiring and hilarious. And by the time I started doing comedy, uh, you know, Carson had sort of really... That, I was not going to be on the Carson show, but the, the grail was really doing stand-up on David Letterman's show. And uh, that was a big deal. And a lot of my friends did it, and I didn't know if I was going to get to do it. But when I finally did it, I guess it was probably 1999, maybe the first one. It was the. It was still one of the most exciting and important nights of my life. Was to appear on that show. It was the most important thing you could do as a stand-up comic at the time. You know, just even if it didn't, it wasn't about selling tickets or it wasn't about anything. It was just that was what we were working for. We were working to be on the David Letterman show. That was it to do to do our five minutes on Letterman or maybe six and a half. It was then. Was it was was the thing to do? That was the, a sign of success, and I'd seen a lot of people do it before me. You know, Todd and Louie and uh, Todd Berry and a lot of my friends. But when I finally uh, got a chance to do it, and I went out there in my silver suit that I bought the day of, the day before at Calvin Klein, I still loved that set, 
And I, the, the feeling I had walking on that stage was one of the, the again, the highlight of my life. And, and I think Dave, you know, I did it, I think I did stand up on there two or three other times. And then I did one, the, my, I, 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 got, I got to do panel, sit down next to him and talk to him, you know, last year before he announced his retirement. And, and that was, again, the most ex, one of the most exciting things in my life was to sit there and look at Dave and talk to Dave and have him laugh. And I, it was... It was it was it was the the best, and I'm just so happy that I had that opportunity, and I'm so happy that we all had Dave for so long on TV because he is he's the best broadcaster on television, really the best, and and he was the funniest talk show host and and really the best at that as well, and we're gonna miss him, but he, you know he had a good run. Okay, so now let's go. Let me try to set this up a little more effectively. I I open this event. On the offstage mic, I let Terry sit out there and I come on the backstage mic and it becomes self-explanatory. But when you do Terry's show, she's never there. You're always on ISDN. You're always sitting alone in a studio and then you hear her on your headset. So that's sort of how this starts uh, to get it going in, 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 in a lighthearted and, and fun way. Enjoy. This event was part of Radio Love Fest, which is a partnership of BAM and WNYC, uh, listener-supported public radio. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. I'd like to uh, thank everyone for coming. Let me start by describing this situation to the audience. What's happening right now is what it's like for almost every guest that Terry talks to. (laughs) Terry's in Philadelphia, and most of the time the guest sits alone in an NPR studio wherever. I've done Fresh Air twice, once from Texas and once from New York City. You were sitting alone waiting in a studio. Then you hear a voice in your headphones, and it's Terry. So I thought she might like to know what it feels like on the other end. (laughs) Uh, Hello, Terry. Hello, Mark. Hi. uh, Yes, this is is Mark Marin, and uh, I'll be doing the interview with you. Okay. This interview is uh, for a live audience that is sitting right in front of you. I see that. It will also be heard by the listeners of Fresh Air and WTF with Mark Marin. Are you familiar with those shows? Yes, I am, Mark. Thank you for asking. Well, great. Uh, so, look, we're recording. We're not live. Well, we're live for 2,000 people here, but that's it. Uh, so if you start talking and then think of a better way of saying something, <laughs> just back up and say it again. Just make sure you start at the beginning of a sentence so we can make a clean edit.
Now, everybody in the audience, please stay quiet when she does this, okay? It's going to seem a little weird, uh, but just hang on. It will all make sense. Also, if I get a fact wrong, Terry, about your life or work, I'd appreciate if you just interrupt me so I can correct it. I will be interrupting you a lot anyway because, well, that's kind of what I do. Um, <laughs> if I should stray into territory that's too personal, just tell me and I'll drop it and we'll edit it out. Except again for the people in front of you. <laughs> they hear everything, but just pretend like that they're not there. I'd prefer if you didn't walk out on the interview entirely. Uh, if that can be avoided, I appreciate it. Now, I was going to ask if you have any questions before we get started, but I guess I'm the one handling the questions tonight, so hang on a sec. <laughs> okay. Hi. You stole my lines. I did. You stole my lines. I, I stole your whole pre-show shtick. <laughs> it's, 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 it is, uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous, but I've prepared. I've written things on a piece of paper. I don't know how you prepare. I could ask you that. Maybe I will, but this is how I prepare. I panic <laughs> for, for a while, yeah. and then I scramble, and then I type some things up, and then I handwrite things that are hard to read oh. so I can you know, challenge myself on that level during the interview. Being self-defeating is always a good part of preparation. What is? It's being self-defeating. Yes. Self-sabotage Yes. key. Right, so you do that? I sometimes do that. How often? I try not to do that. I do that more in life than I do in radio. Really? Yeah. Like, radio, like today? Life is harder than radio. Life is harder than radio. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And I, I find that, like, how did you get up here? Did you take the train? Did you? Dr dr car. You drove a car? Co there was a car. You have yeah. a car. You took a car. We took a car. This is not the hard part, Terry. <laughs> no, but I obsess, <laughs> I obsess about, like, say there's traffic. Say we're leaving to early say we're leaving too late yeah say you know i just kind of go through everything that can possibly go wrong you do that that's your way of preparing that is my way of preparing to pretend like you have control i was of i think i was really brought up thinking that there's some really positive value in um negative thinking so you're jewish yes I think it's the only way to prepare, because then whatever happens, it's got to be better. <laughs> my, you know that Mel Brooks song, um, Hope for the Best, Expect the Worst? Yeah. That's my motto. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, I don't hope for the best. I expect the worst, and then whatever happens is terrific. <laughs> I do the opposite thing. I, well, so this is, uh, I guess it's sort of shocking to me, because my experience with you is only with voice. Um, this is the first time I've seen you moving. Um, <laughs> I think for a while there, pre-internet, there was no pictures of you available anywhere. Pre-internet. Yeah, yeah, and you, you liked it that way. I did. There was a period when I didn't want to be photographed when I declined. It was a short period, but I declined to be photographed because I thought radio listeners want you to be who they think you are visually. Mm -hmm. And I'd meet people and they'd go, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> There's this thing, like, um, when you're on radio and you fill the speaker, people assume, so she's tall. And, and really, I am so short. Um, and so I'd always feel like people would meet me and they'd feel just like they'd hide their disappointment, you know? <laughs> like, oh, she's kind of short. She's not really very glamorous. And so, yeah, so I, I thought, like, let, them, let, let me be whoever they want me to be visually, and, like, that'll be fine. But is, is that... Part of the reason why you don't do the interviews in person? No, that has nothing to do with it. 
But, but it sort of plays into that, doesn't it? I mean, well, no, 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 it's, that's, it's, that's totally irrelevant. It's purely practical why I'm not doing interviews in person. We're, our studio's in Philadelphia, yeah. and we don't have the money to bring people in, and they don't have the time to come in. Like, if you had to come to Philly, would you be on our show twice? Well, that's twice in a lifetime. So I think that, yes, I would come to Philly for you. Of course I would. You're saying I... that on stage, but if we made... <laughs> <laughs> If we made an offer to not pay your transportation from, from California where you live. Oh, you're really trying to sweeten this thing, aren't you? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so this way, they that just, way, of it, like, course. Mark, Mark just goes to whatever station he's closest to, depending on where he no, is. Yeah, I get and that, we but connect it, really well. But it seems to me that like, it, it, it's also part of the mystique as well. I mean, to be like when I, I didn't really know what you looked like, but it, just your voice made me want to be a better person. <laughs> Have I, accomplished like I would, that? Have I accomplished that? Yeah, I think so. I get nervous. Like, you know, like talking to you now is good. I feel like, you know, because like, I don't know why you interview, but for me, it's to get very deep emotional needs met. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, I seem to be getting along with you. We're connecting. That makes me happy. It doesn't feel difficult to me. I know you're wondering how this is going. I'm telling you from my point of view <laughs> that I'm, I'm having a nice time. Now, so am I. But when, I, when I'm in the studio talking to you, I'm like, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm standing up straight. And, and, you know, I want to impress you. Like one time I made you snort laugh and I was like, I win. I like, like what, I heard you laugh and snort and I'm like, I'm, I'm done with radio. I, I, I can wear that as a badge of honor. But, it, but it is, it's sort of interesting to me, somebody who is, you, you know, that aware of like, you know, what you think people think about you or what you're saying, you know, that you didn't want to be seen, that, you know, your voice, it, you, you were brought up Jewish, right? Yeah. Where? Brooklyn. So where is that in your voice? <laughs> where is that in my voice? When I was growing up in Brooklyn, people used to ask me where I was from. And so I don't, you So know, you were born know. with this, you know, weird innate desire to pass? <laughs> <laughs> to pass for what? For something other than a Jew from Brooklyn? <laughs> well, you know, I think like when you're, like my grandparents on both sides were from Eastern Europe and my parents grew up in New York. Yeah. Um, and they had maybe a little bit of a New York accent, but you know, by, by the time I was born, like I'm watching TV, you know, I'm watching TV, I'm listening to the radio. Right. So that's... I know, but my parents were from New Jersey, and they haven't lived there since they were 19 or 50, and I still hear New Jersey. So you just learned from... So you were were that emotionally detached from your parents that you learned (laughs) how to talk from the television. No, I think think a lot of people I grew up with didn't sound like, you know, the New York accent kind of thing. You you, you can't even tap into it? I I know... I'm not very good at voices, at doing other people's voices. <laughs> well, what kind of uh, household was it, and where, where was it specifically? It was in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. <laughs> and for anybody who knows Senior's Restaurant, what used to be Senior's Restaurant, they were in my backyard. Really? <laughs> On an apartment building, uh-huh. like a series of apartment buildings. And, um, yeah, and I, I, what's interesting is that I grew up in a family that thought that we shouldn't share things about the family. Like With the family? Or? No, outside the family. Like oh. You keep that inside. And so there was an article about me that was written for Philadelphia Magazine years yeah. ago. And the gist of the article was like, 
people don't, you know, she's like, people don't know much about her, they don't know who she really is. One of the people on my staff was quoted as saying like, she's really great, I really like working with her. I don't know a thing about her. <laughs> and so my mother took the article and said, you shouldn't have told them all of this. <laughs> And, and she said something like, I don't even want this in my house. And I was like, Mom, the article is about how like, nobody knows anything about me. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of ironic that you know, what I do for a living is try to help people share things about themselves that might be of value to other people. Did you always think about it like that, though? Before, before we get there, though, why were they so uh, uh, wary of people knowing something about the family? I mean, what, was your father running around yelling all the time? There was a, well, there was a little bit of that. Yeah? <laughs> but, How much? Well, he, he wasn't shy about his opinion, let's put it that way. But, but, I mean, among the things that I think kept them being, feeling like you keep things to yourself was... Okay, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, McCarthyism. My father, before he started his own, before, before he became involved with a family business, was a, a union leader, like a small part of the union. Like in the 30s? This would have been in the 40s, probably. Uh -huh. 40s or early 50s. So he, he, had, and, he was justifiably nervous on some level. So like, there was a lot that like, people weren't supposed to know about. Right, but, but, but primarily the Jew thing. Probably primarily the Jew thing, yeah. But he, how would he sort of lay this down? Do you have siblings? Oh, like an example was when, when I was, I'm sorry, what did you just say? Do you have, a, do you have a brothers or sisters? Siblings? I have a brother. So yeah. the two of you I were I didn't hear you, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's okay, yeah. it's a little weird in here. So I thought she was just avoiding it completely. No, no, no. I, like Terry Gross wasn't even gonna acknowledge I said something. I didn't, <laughs> no. maybe I just blow past it, he'll miss that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'm going to handle this interview. <laughs> can, I, can, I just, can I just tell people the notes that you have handwritten are so small, I don't know how you could possibly... Wow. Good luck reading that. No, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, one of them I told, it just told me to, to acknowledge that, that I'm looking at you. <laughs> I get, that says that. Um, this one says... Uh, uh, <laughs> well, we'll get to this. So... Um, <laughs> But how did he lay down the law, your father? To, to, how, how was this a weird kind of like uh, don't talk outside the house thing established? Well, well, I'll give you an example. Like on questionnaires that we get in elementary school, you'd have to fill out, what does your father do for a living? Mm -hmm. I don't know why we had to fill that out, but we did. And so, Probably for the reasons he was afraid of. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> they were going to hunt him down. Exactly. They were going to hunt him down. <laughs> yeah. um, so so I, I would put in millinery because my father used to... Used to his, his, he and his brother and brother-in-law had a company where they sold fabrics to milliners. The, to, they sold the fabrics to the people who made the hats. That's very specific and peculiar. Not a business that would be running today. I, no, exactly. Because, well, those kind of hats don't even exist today. But everyone wore a hat then. Everybody wore a hat Did your then. father have nice hats? He did. But anyway, so I wrote down, <laughs> I wrote down millinery. Yeah. And my father said, no, don't say that. He said, say self-employed. And like, I was a kid and I didn't understand, so what's the, why, what does self-employed mean? Mm -hmm. That's so like, nonspecific. Why the hat shame? I don't know, I don't know what it was. <laughs> but I think he was proud, I think it was, he was proud, he was a businessman and, and that they had a family business. And what did your mom do? 
She had been a secretary. She was probably one of the last people who really knew stenography. Oh, really? Yeah. Like she could do the thing with the, the shorthand thing. Oh, the shorthand thing. Um, the, the, the written shorthand thing. Yeah, yeah. But when, you know, when the children were born, she, you know, gave that up. And, um, so it was you and your brother? It was me and my brother. And he's older or younger? He's five years older, which was perfect because he got all, like, the new records first. And you need he, that guy. You need that. He the got, like, guy. He's the one who got the record player first. and The pot. The what? <laughs> oh. No, no, he didn't do that first, I don't think. No, no drugs uh, in the I, house? I don't, I, don't, I don't think he did that first. No, you yeah. did it first? Probably. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> so you had to turn on your older brother. So well, I, no, I think we you're were... not appreciating the music fully. <laughs> yeah? No? With my brother? <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know. We, 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 um, you know. we lived in different places for a long time. Because he, he was five years old, he went to out-of-town college, then I went to out-of-town oh, right, college. So, right, so. right. Is he st- he's still around? Yeah, we're actually very close. Yeah, what's he do? He is a testing expert. So he was the um, number two person at the National Board of Optometry, which created the exams to certify optometrists. Uh-huh. And now he is a consultant who helps people design tests, mostly in the medical profession. Well, it's hard to sell that as riveting. <laughs> like somewhere... It's, I, just, I asked, but I, like somewhere in the middle, my, my brain went like, is this good radio? <laughs> did yours? I mean, did yours... Like, well, like no, I mean, it's interesting work. I mean, and my brother's an interesting guy. I'm sure he is. I, I, I didn't mean to be snotty. Is he here tonight? Maybe we could have him come up. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> um, so, so you're close with him now? Yeah. And f- but five years older is a big deal. And, and you grew up like, you know, when I look at the, the slight age difference, I mean, you grew up in a sort of very kind of pivotal time of change and, and, and things were very exciting. Yeah. I mean, you were 19 in 1969 right. or so. Yes. Now, when you were younger, I mean, what was, what was the dream? I mean, what were you doing? Well, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a lyricist. Like for songs? For songs. But what made you want to do that? What songs? Um, well, it's more like in Brooklyn, some of the audience here might remember, or they might still do it, I don't know. Brooklyn, Brooklyn schools, public schools, used to have something called Sing, mm-hmm. where you'd put on like, right, you'd put on a show. Each, each grade would put on a show at the end of the year, and you'd write your own, um, your own storyline. You'd borrow melodies from Broadway oh, yeah. shows and write your own lyrics. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the lyricists for each year while I was there. And um, part of the time I was in, in high school, my friends shared this like, interest in, in theater, and it was, it was great. And I thought, like, if I could live that life, if I could live that life where there's, like, there's theater, and there's song, and there's music, and there's people designing scenery and painting it, and like, that would just be super. And then I thought, yeah, and how do you get there? Yeah. Like, how the hell do you get there? Right. So it, practically, in, in your practical thoughts, you were like, I can't do that. I can't do life. that, yeah. But did you see yourself on stage? No. no Just really writing didn't. the songs. You yeah. Know? Like the one was like, what's, what's she doing? Oh, she writes all the songs. <laughs> yeah. She's in the background yeah, writing yeah, the songs. Don't yeah. bother her. But it was kind of thrilling if somebody sang a lyric that I wrote. Like, once I was walking down the street and I heard a couple of like the basketball players singing a lyric I wrote. And I thought like, that is really, that is just... Power. Fabulous. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Do you remember the lyric? No. Really? Yeah. You don't? I'm lying. I, I wouldn't tell you. You wouldn't? No. 
That's what I have you my tell limits. me? Yeah. That's where you draw the that's line? That's where I draw the line. At, at a lyric that some basketball players were singing? That's what you don't want America to know about you? Yeah. You're afraid they'll judge you? Terry Gross wrote that horrible lyric. Yeah, yeah. When she was 14. Yeah. I'm not listening to Fresh Air anymore. That's, you nailed it, Mark. <laughs> you absolutely nailed it. Why is that embarrassing to you? Yeah, because it is. Because it wasn't good. You were a, a, a child. Yeah. Okay. Fine. What else did you do in high school? What else did I do in high school? Um, I, uh, Not a cheerleader, I'm assuming. If you. No, I was a booster, actually. I, what does that mean? It means that you sit and holler uh, in the in the stands. You, you do cheers. You get a cool jacket yeah. and and you sit and holler in the stands. And it, it was, you know. Do you get a thing? No. Nah. Oh. I, I don't. I just did you, that. You, you, you yell the cheers and. And you got a a, a, a jacket. You, you got said? a jacket. And you would be at team sports doing that. I'm totally not into that. I was totally uninterested in basketball. But but apparently you were happy when they sang your songs. Yeah, because because those guys weren't my friends. Right. So the fact that you know that they were like the cool guys. Right. And they probably didn't know who I was, and they were singing something that I wrote that they didn't necessarily know that I wrote. Right. That was just. But you didn't say like I wrote that. No. You just, okay. Yeah. But you, you, so you're trying to fit in by being a booster? Is that what was going on? Well, it seemed like fun. Yeah? Yeah. So you knew how to have fun? Well, that's a good question. Do I know how to have fun? Did you then <laughs> and do you now? Sure. Let's I don't expand know. It. it. Yeah, it's not my, it's not, it's not probably what I'm most famous for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm probably, you know, in some ways better at working than I am at like relaxing. Right. But do you know how to have fun? And yeah, maybe. What, <laughs> what, what do you do for... For fun? Uh, I go to the movies, uh-huh. go to concerts, uh-huh. How are you listen with to you. Oh, you do listen to me? Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I nice. listen to you a lot. I think you're wonderful. Oh. I listen to your podcast. I watch your show. I Thank have your you. comedy album. Okay. No, I think you're wonderful. I'm so glad for this opportunity to well, talk I'm, with you. I'm flattered and, and humbled. And can I get a chance to ask you a question? In a minute. In a minute. <laughs> I know how that goes. <laughs> I'm trying to hold the line, Terry. <laughs> these, these are professional boundaries. I'm the, I'm the questioner. Okay. But, uh, but like, I'm sort of a... I'm, so how are you with the joy? Do you... How, do you ex- I'm asking this because this is all, all I know. Look, you know, we do... You know, I came... A, I became an interviewer for, for reasons that had nothing to do with interviewing. Uh, I, I ended up there. And, and, you know, I know what my emotional... Why I do it and how I ended up here. Uh, so, like, right now, personally, I'm wrestling with... And I don't know if you feel this way. You call it... You say you work all the time. But you talk to people professionally. And, you know, you elicit things from them and you, 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 you draw people out. And, and for the reason you said before is to you know, make lives better by, by kind of letting people tell who they are. But do you get something out of that emotionally? Because I find in my life that I'm capable of a almost deeper intimacy with... That was the question I was going to ask you. Well, I'm asking you first. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like I had one of these weird kind of like, uh, yes, I'm glad that I, I'm, I'm on the same right track. That if I came up with that question that you already had in your mind. Do you? Well, it's a weird thing, you know. Um, I'll give you an example. Like, I often ask people who, who have a history of illness 
or who, who are near death, because I've interviewed people who are near death, I've asked them very intimate things about facing death and about their attitudes toward death. I ask people a lot how they want to be buried or if they want to be buried, if they prefer to be cremated. Mm. Um, I had a friend a couple of years ago who, uh, who was also a neighbor who died, and I spent a lot of time with her at the end of her life, um, in helping, like shopping for food for her, making some food for her. And um, I knew she didn't want to talk about facing death, and she was really not ready to do it. I mean, to the end, she, she didn't want to talk about it. And so here I am talking to people who I'm not in the room with, like you said. I don't know them, they don't know me, and I'm asking them about death, and here's my friend who's dying, and I'm not talking with her about death. But there was a reason for that, and I felt it would have been intrusive in a way that it's not with my interviewees, because she was not ready to talk about it. And also the experience you were having was, you, you know, you were there for her. I was there to be protective and to give her what she needed. And what she needed, or at least what she thought she needed, wasn't to talk about that. And, and so that was respecting you know, Respecting her. Because it would seem selfish if you just kept pestering her. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, no, come on, tell me. Yeah. Come on, where would you like to be buried? <laughs> would you rather be cremated? But you don't <laughs> have to feel so, like. But yeah. maybe it was your curiosity. Uh, like, did you have any of those interviews while you were going through that experience with her? Were, were, was it a, uh, something you needed answered for yourself? Um, I think about death you know, a, a, a fair amount. I'm not, I'm not obsessed about death or anything, mm -hmm. but, you know, I mean... Too busy. <laughs> well, I mean, you mean, part of the meaning of life is knowing that you're going to die. That's part, part of where you derive meaning, is that knowing that life is a measured amount of time. So you have to use that time wisely. Yeah, something like um, that, yeah. But, um, um, but I don't know if I actually did any interviews immediately in that time period when she was dying. But by asking people about this, you know, are you curious for yourself or, or do you want to know how they're handling it? I mean, how much, how much of this is driven by uh, your own curiosity for answers for your own life? Oh, a lot of it. Yeah. A lot of it. You know, people always say they want to find out what makes other people tick. I always feel like I want to find out what makes me tick. Right. And I've just like learned a lot about myself and about people in general by having the liberty of asking people very personal things. But I do it selectively. Like, I ask people personal things who I think are ready for it mm -hmm. and who can handle it. Um, How do you determine that? Well, they're usually th on the show for a reason, and often the reason is that they've written a memoir or there's someone like you who uses your life as the material right. that you draw in, in what you do, yeah. comedy. Your comedy comes so directly from your life. Your stand-up, yeah. your show. Yeah. Who do you play on your show? A version of yourself. Yeah, that um, guy. So with you, I feel like I can ask you probably anything. Yeah. And you'd probably answer. And if you didn't, you'd know how to handle it. Yeah. If you didn't want to answer it, you'd know how to get around it. I don't know if that's true. Really? <laughs> well, I'd know how to get around it, but like, I, it would probably be like so blaringly obvious that I was just sort of like, oh, I don't know if I want to deal with that. <laughs> I'd accept that as an answer. But would you cut that? You would cut that. It depends. What it, the tone of cut it, was? it We would cut it if we were um, trying to protect you, but if you did it in a way that you wanted out there, mm -hmm. where we wouldn't feel like we were violating you by mm -hmm. putting it out there, we'd put it out there as like, you're proud to say, here's what your limits are. Have you had experience with that, where you know, you've made that call and you were wrong and you violated somebody? Um, 
Mm, I don't think so. Is there anyone that won't do your show ever again, or you won't and won't talk to you? No, I don't. F well, my producers are in, in, in the audience, so maybe they can think of somebody. No, we've had publicists who said... <laughs> They're sitting there going, like, she doesn't even know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that is maybe true. We don't tell her that. Why'd you bring that up? We, we've had publicists call and say, please don't run that. Yeah, and? And it's like, well, thanks for your input. It's our, <laughs> it's our job to decide what to run. But, but have you heeded that before? Did you ever think that, you know, outside of, you know, that the publicist was doing it for a reasonable... Well, it, you know, it's happened once or twice. Like once, Peter Falk, back when he was alive, mm -hmm. told this really funny... He has a fake eye. And he told this really... What? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> he just told this really funny story about taking out the fake eye, yeah. and it had a great punchline. He'd obviously was enjoying telling the story, and the publicist called afterwards and said, you can't, you can't put that on the air. It's like, are you crazy? He loved telling the story. He's probably told it uh, how many times before? Right. Like, like, I, like, maybe you're unhappy that we didn't promote your new movie enough. Or they were Too concerned bad. that, that and, you know, no one knew that he had a fake eye. I doubted it. It's like... It was just a weird request. You can kind of see that one eye doesn't move, right? It's, yeah. Uh, you know, and if he's not shy about it, why should a publicist protect him from something? Right. Uh, it made no sense. Well, yeah, I, I rarely get, you know, the only time people have asked me to take stuff out is when they bring someone else up or, or with Andy Dick that we didn't know whether there was a statute of limitations on a felony. Huh. Uh, Seriously? <laughs> wow. So. But, but. But can I, can, can I ask you a question? So a lot of your friends are comics. Yeah. Right? And so I'm assuming, like, when comics get together, yeah. that they don't share intimate thoughts and talk about their lives. And, yeah. But you talk to people about really personal stuff on your show. Yeah. When, when you're doing your podcast and you're interviewing people, do you go places you don't with your friends? You know, because, because it's... Well, I... Uh I know what you're doing. <laughs> Do you mind? Do I mind? Yeah, if I ask you? No. Uh, no, I mean, like, I, I, sometimes I don't know what's socially appropriate and what isn't, even with friends. And if I need to talk about something, usually my, m the way I do it, like if you want to learn some tricks, is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, you know, if I go ahead and volunteer some information, there's some part of the brain that's sort of like, oh, I can top that, or I've done that, or, you know, that seems weird, but I've done some weird shit. You know, so, like, I, I, we, comics do talk about life. They just talk about it in sort of a rough way or a crass way. But right. most of them, you know, most of the comics I know, you know, we do talk about that stuff. And, and not unlike, you know, wh whoever your friends are, uh, <laughs> You know, you know how to operate. You know how your friends work eventually. Right. And you know, you learn how to talk about those things with them and right. you know where their, their right. boundaries are. And, right. You know, right. there's no reason to... You know, I've pushed a lot of people away by being, you know, needy and nervous. Oh, really? Yeah. You? You mean in, in real life or on the, or on no, the air? No, in real life. Um, do you have friends? I, I, I do, but it's, it's, it's almost like theoretical. It's almost like an abstraction because I never seem to have time to see them. You have abstract friends? I mean, I, I, I have people who I love in my life, mm -hmm. and I have a husband who I love very much, and we've been together like, since like 1978. The That's staff I work with, I mean, I work with people like our executive producer. We've worked together since 1978. Yeah, Danny? Danny, yeah. And a How lot did of you people meet that on the guy? show. And a lot of people on the show I've worked with for years, and I've, 
I, they might disagree. I feel very close to them. How and could it's you not? Satisfying. You're with them more than anybody. Yeah, I, we spend a lot of time together, and it feels to me like a very close set of relationships. Did, does your husband ever talk in this tone? How's Danny? <laughs> no, no, he likes Danny a lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> does he? Does he talk? Your, your husband? Does he talk? Does he talk? Oh yeah, he talks. He writes. That's he, he's a. I know. I, I know he's, he's a, a professional he's a, writer. He's a writer. For, he writes a, a jazz critic, right? He's a jazz critic. Yeah. So he's writing about music. So he writes about music and other things. And does, does this does happen a, in your house? Does Does what? your husband? What's your husband's name? Francis, right? Your husband's name? Francis Davis. Francis Davis. Does he go? Does he say, uh, Terry, come in here and dig this swing? Does he? Uh, <laughs> no, but he does say, I really want to play this track for you. Yes. Do you have or, time? For music? <laughs> no, that, that was the next thing he says. Oh, Can you oh. spare me a few minutes? Yeah. No, well, one of the things we do Saturday mornings mm. and when we have breakfast is we choose a record that we want to hear. And you just enjoy it? Well, while we're eating and talking and listening, yeah. yeah. Like you make, this is a, a, a routine you have? Yeah, it's like a routine every Saturday morning. Music time? Yeah, well, we, we each have our own music time too, but that's our like music together time. But do you turn each other on to music, or is it is yeah, it? Like yeah, we play. Well, he, we, we play things for each other. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, and you and then you eat breakfast while too. we're listening. While you're listening. Yes. Does 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 uh, Francis ever just sort of like go? Ugh, that this you know like, <laughs> like I, I'm making a character for your husband. I don't know, but what I'm saying. Does, does he, is he ever like, I don't like this one. Here's what typically happens. He spends a lot of time in record stores looking for unusual and interesting things. So he's a vinyl things. guy. Well, our house is like, it's kind of like we're living in a record store in the Oh, library. so now we're talking. So, so he's got, there's just stacks of records everywhere. Because I know the vinyl addiction. Records and CDs and so. So do you walk piles. around the house going, are you kidding me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't get into the bathroom. It is a little like that. Oh, it okay. is a little like that. So, um, but but anyway, so no, he's, no, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> is your house like that? Is your house like that? Is my house? Yeah. Oh no, let's stay at your house. <laughs> so, no. my house is like a, a little apartment. That's how I pictured it. Like every time I talk to you on the air, I always picture you like in some weird bunker surrounded by books. <laughs> It's kind of like, like that. Like you have your own ISDN line. And you I just don't have that. You should get that. Why don't you get that? There's then probably no room right, for that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So what do you have? So I picture you have like hundreds of books, hundreds of thousands. We have a lot of books. We have, uh, I, I try no, not to take No, he has records. Home. What do you have? I try not to take stuff home anymore. From the, stu- from the station? Yeah, because it keeps a, coming. there's no room. There's just no, we're just like, we're maxed out. Really? Are yeah. you like, and, like and wait, are you like hoarder maxed out? <laughs> Are you like doing this down the hallway? <laughs> Come on. It's what, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's getting close. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it, it. It we have a lot of stuff, <laughs> books and records and CDs. How much time do you spend at work versus how much how much time you spend, you know, in the the record pit? Uh, I'm, I'm usually in the office by around 8.30. In the morning? In the morning. I leave around 6. Uh-huh. And, and then that's every day? That's every weekday. And then my husband and I usually go out for dinner. Every night? Yeah, just about every night. There's no cooking at home? Uh, I'm too tired to cook. He hates to cook. I mean, There's he doesn't know how to cook. It's not an issue. It's he doesn't like, know how to cook? No, I mean, I mean He's just nothing. sitting at home listening to records all day. <laughs> 
Um, li listening, writing, reading. Um, sure, not that's Not cooking, he doing things that are not cooking. Does he shop at least? I mean, come on. Like, do, For food, he, we go to the, go to the supermarket together. Why can't he do it himself? What's he doing all day? <laughs> writing, listening. All right, all right. Writing. I don't buy it. But it's, it's <laughs> um, so you go out to eat every night, and then you do the, the, the music thing on Saturdays. That's nice. It sounds, it sounds like you have a nice, nice time, nice relationship. We have a great relationship. Mm -hmm. yeah. And no children. No. And that's, uh, that's okay, That's right? intentional. And well, I, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that gets... That, um, I, speaking for myself... I don't have any either. I know you do. And, I, don't. Um, I don't. I mean, I know you do not. I, yeah, I, I know you really do. No, I know you don't. No, um, growing up in Brooklyn, when I was growing up, all the uh, women I knew were basically full-time mothers. Mm -hmm. Or they were in the few professions that allowed women at the time. Mm. You know, secretary, clerk, working in your husband's office, mm -hmm. um, nurse, teacher. And I just knew I didn't want to be, I, didn't, I wanted a different life. I wanted out. I wanted out of the neighborhood. I wanted out of that life. I didn't want that life. But, but, and, but at that time, why, why and, do you think that was? Well, like, why didn't I want that what, life? What was it that like, looked so unappealing? What did you realize at that time that many people don't even realize now? I wanted, I wanted interesting work. I wanted to fall in love with work, and I wanted to fall in love with a person. And, you know, I'm lucky I had both. And was your husband your first love? Um, now that I really know what love is, I'd say hmm. yes. Hmm. It, but, but, but... What was the other thing? Well... <laughs> I mean, I... I, I mean, I, I... Oh, this gets really personal. I mean, I, I, was, I was married before, and... For how long? Um, a short time. And we were very close, and it was... <laughs> It was a year, maybe? A year. I, I, I don't... Right, how old it, were you? It was a very close relationship. Let's and, relax a little bit. And <laughs> it makes me nervous to talk how, about... How, how old were you with the first I was marriage? very young. We were still in college. Like 19, 20? Yeah, it's the era, it was the era... Um, yeah, I was 20, maybe, 19, 20. Where'd you meet that guy? Oh, we actually knew each other from high school. Really? Yeah, so but you not had, well. And you met him, he went to college at the same college as you? Yeah. And this, was, uh, and, and this was the 60s? Yeah. And you guys, you thought you fell in love? Well, we did, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. And, and you got married quickly, or? Um, we got married quickly. I don't know, we'd already been living together for a while. It didn't seem that Oh, quick. up there at college? You know, time seems different when you're young. Like sure. a year is like a really long time. Yeah, yeah, but you were living together at college? Yeah, 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 we were living together. Okay, How, did your parents know about that? Yeah, they did. They were okay, they were okay with it? Uh, they were okay, as okay as parents were at the time. My parents weren't okay with anything I was doing then. I dropped out of high school and hitchhiked cross-country with him before we were married. Whoa, we, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so this is before you went to college, or? This is you while we were in out college. Of high school. Why in my in? sophomore year, instead of going to college, we hitchhiked cross-country. You and this guy? Me and this guy. What, where's this guy now? In New York. Oh, you know him still? We haven't been in touch in a long time, but... Okay. Yeah. Well, surprise, we happen to have him. No, he's, <laughs> no he's, he's a wonderful person. I mean, I have nothing but... I, 
He's, he's a really wonderful person. Um, I know, I, I'm just yeah. like, you have to understand that, like, you know, a lot of us have uh, created a life for you, Terry, and this is all, <laughs> this is exciting information. This is what we're, you know, I, you know, we can, you know, be funny and, and just brush over stuff all night long, but this is exciting stuff to me. <laughs> Well, my parents, when I decided to hitchhike cross-country, they were very, very upset about it. I'm, I'm upset now. Well, now, now, that, now that I'm the age that I am, yeah. I think, like, my gosh, no wonder they were so upset. But my attitude then was, you know, you're not telling me what to do. Right, fuck you, like, right? I'm an adult. Right, Yeah. right. It's like, you don't control me anymore. Yeah, that's right. It's 1960-whatever. And, nine? you know, we had nine, and what do yeah. parents know? Like, that must have been part of your brain at that time, the culture shifting and parents representing what they were representing. It sounds like your parents were, you know, uh, somewhat progressive, but definitely middle class and had expectations. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. And so this was not their expectation that I would, like, drop out or... Was this a big deal for you? Was it against it was, character? It was totally against character. And, and the fact is that I think my boyfriend wanted to do it probably more than I did because I'm really not the adventurous type. Um, huh. I think I'm kind of, I think I'm like intellectually adventurous. I'm adventurous in my musical taste, in my artistic taste. Sure. I'm not a physically adventurous person. Right. Uh, I'm not, I'm a risk taker when it comes to radio. Mm -hmm. I'm not a risk taker <laughs> when it comes to the outside world. When it comes to being outdoors. When it comes to, yeah, right. like no, life I get itself. It. So, th but that, but, <laughs> yeah. but but, so you know that about yourself now, yeah. but this must have been a fairly powerful bit of business it, for it, you personally. It was, and it was weird. I mean, I hitchhike rides, like there was somebody who was probably just out of prison and somebody else who was probably had tuberculosis, judging from how he was coughing. <laughs> and in the back of a truck with probably, there were probably migrant workers, and there were axes all over. I don't think they planned on using them against us, but it is a kind of creepy feeling to be in the back of a pickup truck where there's axes. And, and if my ex-boyfriend husband is listening to this, I hope his memories jive with mine about these rides, because I can't swear to the accuracy of my memory, but we had some pretty spooky rides, and then we stayed. We stayed. <laughs> We stayed, um, after hitchhiking in San Francisco, it's like, well, we don't have any money with us, so where are we gonna stay? Um, so we stayed in one of those SROs. Sure. And then when we got into the room, we realized and the all building- all the people that gave you rides were there? <laughs> yeah, really. And, and, and the, the room had a sign on it saying it was condemned. And the building was soon to be closed. And like all night, there were like people just like fighting and, it was so weird. And then the people who ran it locked us in the room. I don't know what that was about. I, I, like, I really don't know what that was about. But it was just totally creepy. But do you remember how you reacted? Were you there with your boyfriend going like, what is happening? Yeah, I was just like, this is too, this is... I'm, I'm amazed at how vivid your memories are of this major event in your life that you were perfectly willing to toss aside a moment ago. Now... <laughs> I was? We, you, we were ready to blow right by this. Uh -huh. We weren't going to be hitchhiking five minutes ago. <laughs> but that's, like, that's good. I, like, I feel like I'm, I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> so. so, but it was very upsetting to me because my parents were so upset. And I love my parents dearly. And it broke my heart to know how much, 
how distraught they were. They tried everything. They flew up to Buffalo before I left and begged me, don't go. On the trip. On the to, trip. The hitchhiking thing. And I did this whole, I've got to do what I've got to do, and you can't tell me. And, but my heart was breaking because it's like, I don't want to hurt them. But at the same time, I felt like I had to cut the strain. Right. You know, and that, and that if I gave in, that it would always feel to them like, she's our good daughter, everything's under control. And I just, I just had to do it. Um, well, I think it sounds like it was probably one of the most important things you've ever done in your life. In some ways, it maybe was. It was, it was kind of life-changing. And, and it actually, it was a great experience for me in terms of my work, too, because I met people I, I otherwise never would have met, had conversations I otherwise never would have had, and got exposed to things I never would have. How many, I ate at a mission um, most days because, like I said, we, we didn't have money with us. We weren't working at the time. But this right? was also part of the mindset of the 60s. It this was. was something you were doing. It's something you did. And, you know, it's not like, hey, mom, dad, so I did exactly what you begged me not to do. Can you lend me some money? I mean, there's no way we're going to do that. So, so we ate, you know, you're talking about being Jewish. So we'd eat at these Christian missions. Yeah. Where you'd, you'd, everybody would be singing these like Christian songs, and then you'd be served day-old donuts and stew. Yeah. Now I understand something about that experience. Right. I never would have understood that. So it, it's really one of the most instructive things I ever did. But when you were driving with these characters in yeah. these cars, I didn't talk to them much. But they must have talked. That's all they wanted to pick y- you up you know, for. I don't. I don't remember much of the conversations. But you just remember this sort of like, oh my God, this stranger, we're in his world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember feeling just kind of, this is definitely an adventure, and I feel insecure, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't like... Scared. So, yeah, like some of the people who picked us up, they, they were scary characters. Well, I, I don't know if you know this, hitchhiking is scary. It is. Well, I used to hitchhike all the time in Buffalo. Everybody did, just to get to class and get home. Back in um, the day. Yeah, but where I, when I was in college in, in, in Buffalo... Um, and I had, I had some weird rides there, too, that, you know, <laughs> kind of stupid. But, but I picked let's, up... Let's I'd follow that laugh back a little bit. <laughs> what, what was funny there in your head? Well, I got picked up by this guy once who said, I just got to take a detour. And that's the last thing you ever <laughs> want to hear when you're hitchhiking, Right. Yeah. And so he gets, he detours me, and there's this like older guy, and he mm. detours me to some like construction site or something where his friends is working, and he starts showing me off almost as like, like I'm his girlfriend or something, and I thought like, get me out of here. <laughs> right. Just get me out of here. Yeah. And I got out of there. So, but. You but ran away or he just. I can't remember, like that's where sure. the, dr- the bad dream ends. Like, right. I don't remember what happened. Well, I know it's like happy yeah. ending. <laughs> But, you know... <laughs> you didn't it, marry that guy. Well, no, but I had such good... My parents had such good reasons sure, no, to course. be afraid. Um, but, but also in retrospect... But I, I have no regrets about doing it. Right. Um, but, I mean, I, I think that once you got back safely and, you know, was there, did it get okay with your parents? Were they, or did you marry the guy right when you got back as part of the same momentum to sort of say, I'm my own person? And, I mean, we loved each other. It mm-hmm. was a beautiful relationship. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, it was, it was good. Mm-hmm. Just didn't work out. Well, you know, at some point, um, we were living, even when we got married, we were living with a group of people. And, because um, it was, it was the 60s and 70s, and like, it was, you know, people shared, you know, the housework and the cooking, and, and at some point I thought, <laughs> no, and that's where it ended. Uh, yeah. And, 
And, and for you, <laughs> or, for, or in general? No, no, no. It, it, it was, was not that kind of thing. It was not it that was kind of thing. A lot of people, yeah. uh, you know, hairy people. <laughs> um, probably, probably not a lot of showering going on. Uh, some like a lot of healthy food ish. A healthy food ish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, um, uh, one really good-looking guy who was sort of the leader. <laughs> Well, a couple of our roommates ran the health food rest, the, the macrobiotic health oh, really? food restaurant. Yeah. Oh, so it was restaurant. all connected. This it is, is, a- is all connected. But, but at some point, I realized, you know what I really need? You know what I really, really need? I need to live alone. With the man or just out of it? Just So you were married me. in the group house? Yeah. Okay. And at some point, I realized, like, I, I just need to be alone. Did you freak out, like, totally? Like, ah, I need to be alone. These people. No, not at all. Not at all. I just thought... That's, I need to find out who I am. Oh, good. Outside of the group. Right. Outside of a marriage. I was too young but to you be al- committed, is sure. what it really was. Yeah. Um, and you I needed to know yourself. myself. Right. And I needed to know, and I think a lot of women go through this, and I th- think coming of age when I came of age, um, you know, and I started college in 1968, um, it was kind of understood, like, you grow up, you get married, and you have children, and even if you have a job, that's the trajectory. And like I said before, I knew I wanted a different life, and I knew at some point that to have that life, I needed to know who I was, and um, without picking up on what other people wanted of me, or asked of me, or projected on me, or any of that, and that required just having some room totally by myself, which I'd I'd never had in my life. And um, this was pretty early in the renaissance of the women's movement, too. So, so all like of this is coinciding. Junior, senior year we're talking now? Like after I graduated. Okay. Um, and I'd already gotten fired from my first job, which, which was, was teaching. Which was what? Teaching? <laughs> yeah. What grade? Uh, eighth grade. Is that what you wanted to do? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, no, um, I know. It was a default? It was a default thing. I had wanted to be a writer. Um, but I found out pretty quickly that the things that I thought were great writing were things that I would be incapable of writing myself, that I'd never measure up to the literature that I love. Did you try? Not hard enough, but trying harder wouldn't have helped enough. So it was sort of a romantic notion? It wasn't a romantic notion. I'd always written, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and writing was always important to me, and, you know, I was one of the editors of, like, the junior high school yearbook and stuff like that, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd written lyrics, and... I, I, for basketball players. For, yeah, and, <laughs> and I, I had always um, wanted to write, but once I re- understood better what good writing was... I mean, my husband, I think, is a brilliant writer, um, and, you know, watching, watching him work, and I don't mean watching him at the keyboard, but, but like hearing him think through a sentence, hmm. or hearing him think through the direction of his piece, or sometimes having him, like sometimes if like I'm writing a speech or something, mm-hmm. as, you know, as opposed to like an interview or an intro, I'll ask him to edit it, and watching him edit me is such a learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And also it's... Uh, like he's, he's, he's like the best writing teacher I've ever had. And also it's part of your relationship. You yeah. trust him to help you, yeah, yeah, you know, do your yeah. work and he bounces stuff off of you. And, that's and, and part of what we share mm-hmm. is, you know, our, our very similar tastes in music 
and writing and movies. And that's kind of the world we live in. Like when you were asking me before about joy, like what gives me joy, I'm not the kind of person who loves like parties or like mountain climbing or, <laughs> you know, hiking or like let's go camping <laughs> or, you know, let's have an adventure. Yeah. Um, but I love like a that great hitchhiking thing really knocked <laughs> it out. <laughs> yeah, of that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, um, that was the end of that. That was the end of that. Um, but but I like I love like a, a good movie or like really great writing or you know music, sure. uh, concerts. This is exactly what I think we all hoped you were doing. <laughs> we all expected this. Exactly. But that, that's where I really live. Yeah. That's, that's like that's what I consider to be like my home. But when you took this first you know major action to be alone and, and to sever uh, you know to end a marriage and, and and you know move out of the the house with I, what I assume got to be pretty predictable cooking and behavior. Um, <laughs> Thanks for dismissing a few years of my life that way. <laughs> I only I'll remember one that part the next that. time I interview you. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I, I, I assume there were a lot of things that went into that decision, but did you, through most of your life, did you find yourself you know, uh, you know, being either whether you grew up with it or what, but it seems like to take that type of action and, you know, to push your parents away like you do and then to, to have this epiphany and, and leave, did you find yourself, you know, easily sort of maneuvered by other people and other people's shadows, attached to other people? Okay, well, I'll tell you something. I think one of my gifts is also one of my weaknesses, which is I have a kind of antenna for other people. I think I'm kind of... And my friends, my, my friends and my producers might disagree with me about this. I think I have an antenna that picks up on what other people are feeling. But there's, there's something good and bad about that. Mm -hmm. The bad thing about that is that you're always wondering like, oh, did I hurt, so I think I hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, I think I said the wrong thing. Oh, I think they hate me. Mm -hmm. Oh, they just move their mouth in such a way and I think they meant to say something bad and they stopped. It's, you know what I mean? So you're always kind of... I, I know exactly what you mean. You're always I, like I, reading other people and sure. guessing them and feeling what you think they're feeling. I've been doing that all night. Yeah. But that's the thing. As an interviewer, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. You mm. want to do that as an interviewer. You want to be thinking, what are they feeling now? What are they thinking now? What do they think when they go about their lives? What's their typical life like? What was it like for them when they experienced this trauma? Mm. And that guides me in, in figuring out what to ask them. But it also makes me very um, uh, nervous. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. A little insecure. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I understand that. Well, then, so like you know, when you you know you took that action to like, I, I imagine that you had a, a fairly deep attachment to everybody in your life at that time because your life was sort of based in that. You know, so when you took that action to like, I got to get out, you know, like... It was really, really hard to do. So when you ripped it yourself out? It was so hard to do. It was really hard to do. I felt terrible about it. In some ways, I think I was very, I was very hurtful. I, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I was nasty in the way I did it, but I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a hurtful thing sure. to do. But you got, you got to pick you sometimes, I I, d I did, and... Um, and what happened? What was the feeling like? What was the, the year after that, when you started to find yourself? How did you gravitate towards, towards radio? What made you make those it decisions? It was... Um, and, and I'm realizing, as I say everything, I keep thinking like, okay, so all the people who I'm referencing, 
they have their own versions of this, which might be different from mine, and I just want to go on the record as saying that. that I'm, no, that I, I deal with people who write memoirs all the time, and I always wonder, like, how accurate is what they're telling me? How accurate is their memory? And I'm telling you that I am being as honest as I can to my memory, and other people's memories might be different. I, I honestly think the, the only guy that might have objection is the guy that might not have had tuberculosis. That <laughs> He was, we, yeah, we, <laughs> he was a sensitive guy. He was a sensitive guy. We comb this interview for people you threw under the bus there haven't been any. <laughs> but, uh, so I have to imagine that teaching for somebody with the sensitivity that you had must have been like the biggest fucking horrible. nightmare in the world. It was the worst nightmare ever. I taught in Buffalo, New York's, in Buffalo, New York's toughest inner city junior high, eighth grade. Yeah. And I came in the day after election day. I was like the what year? second or third teacher. 72? This would have been 72. I wanted to be the teacher who I wanted to have when I was in junior high. Mm. So I foolishly went to school dressed in my purple corduroy pants, work boots. How mm. am I doing? In what grade? Eighth grade. Oh, boy. Yeah. So you walk in like, hey. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it was terrible. It was so stupid. Did you leave crying the first day? Um, uh, I probably did my fair of weeping. Um, the first day, uh, it got worse as time went on because uh, things just kind of fell apart. The first day they're testing you, then they realize how weak you are, like how, <laughs> how, how bad at this you are. Yeah. I couldn't keep the students in the classroom. I couldn't teach them a lesson. I couldn't do anything. Oh, my God, it's no, so it was sad, Terry. It, it was it's terrible. Like, and, and, and you, had, you were a, a teacher no, so with the personality of a substitute. I was a child. I was like 22. I was shorter than they were. And I didn't know how to be the authority well, then figure. Then why'd you do that? Did you just think like, I it's guess... It's the default thing. Yeah, I know. Because, yeah. you know, I wanted to be a writer and then, okay, uh -huh. not that. And then I spent all my time in school basically outside of the classroom. I dropped out for a semester. And then, you know, like my college years, it was like the women's movement, the peace movement, all kinds of extracurricular things, you know, like... <laughs> Right, including, you know, there was constant, like, jazz concerts and poetry readings and, like, repertory Acid. cinema. Huh? Acid. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, there, I mean, there's a lot going on. Sure. Um, and I got a great education, but it wasn't, like, so much in the classroom. And when it came time to, like, so what's your life going to, what's your career going to be, it's like... Well, I don't know. I'm an English major. I don't know. Sure, Sign do me up I can to teach. teach. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel called to teach. I didn't feel like I'd be a good teacher. Right. I didn't How really long want to teach. Did it last? Six weeks. Oh, wow. I got fired. You got fired in six weeks. Was it one of those firings where they're, they're like, this, I feel like, we don't think this is working out. Do you? Well, oh, God. First of all, I just want to say, you know, people say, there's no way of firing teachers. They fired me. <laughs> 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 I'm living proof. Well, the principal, this was like a really chaotic, violent school. Um, and you know, like one day, the kid, one of the students took out a knife and dropped it just to see, what's Ms. Gross going to do? Hmm. What and did Ms. Gross do? Ms. Gross watched. <laughs> Ms. Gross acted like she was in a movie. And she went, oh, the kid just dropped a knife. I don't know what to do. <laughs> wow, you had a lot of authority no in idea. that room. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly, of, exactly. Yeah. I felt like they'd written this like, really interesting movie and they cast me in it, and they forgot to give me the script. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. So, so thank God you chaos. got fired. Thank God I got fired. But I got fired, so like, they're grading me. They're grading me, and they said, 
the guy was the principal, was from a small town school who just moved. He had no idea what he was doing. You were in Buffalo. Which added to the chaos. Yeah. And so they're grading me. And, and like, this is, you know, it's not working, blah, blah, blah. So they're grading me. This is like my outgoing thing. It's like, okay, you're from New York City, so I'm going to give you a, a high grade in, uh, in culture. And they gave me like below average in dignity and self-respect or something. And I thought like, what the hell does that mean? Like, who is, who is measuring this? But this is the kind of thing where my brother could intercede and say, exactly what are your criteria <laughs> for measuring dignity and self-respect? <laughs> because my brother knows bullshit when it comes to an evaluation question. Uh-huh. It seems to me that the way you were feeling in general in terms of your sensitivity, the, the lack of digni- self, self-respect and, and dignity might have just been a misread of your fear and insecurity. Well, sure, yeah. yeah. And so, also, what gets self-respect in an in inner city school was not something that I had. No. In other words, right. you have to be tough. Yeah. You have to like, be the authority. You have to draw the line. You have yeah. to meet certain challenges. I'm the opposite. Right. I'm kind of like you know, shy and introverted and, you know, yeah. what do you self-deprecating do? humor, yeah. like, right. how does that go over when you're teaching? Yeah. You know, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now you're, you're, you're out of a marriage, you're out of the hippie house, you're out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> You've tried the drugs, you know, your parents I, don't I, like I might you. have gotten fired before I moved. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, because I, I, think, I think I got fired at first, and then I moved. So everything, that was a shitty month. No, that's the best thing that ever happened to me, getting fired. Right. That was a high point. Oh, good. Yeah, it's like, thank you for liberating me from this position. I really hated every second of it. But you might not have done it on your own. I, no, no. Right. I wouldn't want to be a quitter. Right. So, so now here you are. Uh, alone, and, uh, and, and when did you become empowered in the sense of like thinking like I want to be, you know, on radio, I want to have a voice like that. I mean, what moved you towards radio? So this was maybe when I was, this was when I was still living um, with a group of people, and one of the women I was living with was going to be on the feminist show. Um, as a guest? As a guest. Um, it's FM radio. This is the, the college station, which oh, was okay. the NPR affiliate. Mm-hmm. And so I guess um, it was, I was no longer teaching and I was working odd jobs, mm-hmm. but I hadn't moved out yet. So she was going to be on the radio and she came out on the radio. Okay. She came out as gay. Mm-hmm. No big deal, except she hadn't told her roommates yet. She hadn't had, told us yet. Had so she told her parents surprise. or anybody? Was this the I first? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But her, her lover was the, one of the producers of the feminist show and was moving to the lesbian feminist show. Um, this is 1972 or three or something, 73, I guess. So there's gonna be an opening on the feminist show. And, and so, so my roommate knew that I wanted to get into media because that was my ambition in this uh-huh. point, to get into media, but I didn't know how. Uh-huh. So she gave me the phone number of one of the producers uh-huh. and said, call her up and maybe they'll let you volunteer on the show. And it was like an all volunteer staff. And that's how I started in radio. Wow. <laughs> Thank God that woman came out, huh? <laughs> Good for everybody. <laughs> was there a really, really feminist program as well? W- w- was there <laughs> the feminist program, the gay feminist program, the <laughs> really, really gay feminist program? 
or did that happen later? <laughs> no, no, that was it. That was it? Those two shows. So what was your job at first when you got in there? Well, um, it, it, was, um, it, it was a kind of group-run program, so we'd all alternate, like, who was on the air and who was producing and who was editing and who was engineering and everything. But the first shows that I did, um, that, that I actually, like, wrote and voiced, one was on women in the blues, like early women blues singers, one was on the history of women's restrictive undergarments, bras and girdles, who invented them and why. And, and one of the early shows I did was about sadomasochistic imagery, images of women in popular culture, because I grew up with Westerns, and women in Westerns were always getting kidnapped and held hostage, and I could always tell that there was something kind of kinky going on with this. You know, like, women would always, like, they would have their hands tied behind them, and they'd be, like, wriggling around and everything. You could always tell, like, this is, you know, I'm a kid, I know this is kinky. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I wanted to know, like... I'm feeling something, this is kinky. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like, well, this just is say kinky. it, Terry. Yeah, no, I was just like, I know it's kinky. Yeah. So, like, why, like, why is this, like, what is this about? Mm. Did you deal with, like, the, that it was male-driven? You know, it was before I, I had the language of, like, the male lens through which all popular <laughs> culture is seen. But you were so close. You were almost, you <laughs> so, were right there. Yeah, I saw shopping around. I couldn't find anyone who could talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, did, so you just did it? I think I, I ba- basically did some really unfulfilling interviews and did some research and read some things I found. It was a terrible show. Is that available online anywhere? God forbid. No. <laughs> it's no, not? I don't think it exists have anywhere. Have you tried to find that stuff? No, I, I really... I, no, I have like 90 seconds left of me in that era, and that's it. And that's really probably... I think there might be something archived in Buffalo. But uh, that's all I have. how does your voice sound to you? It kind of sounds like this. Does it? Yeah. Oh, so up? Like... Yeah, because, well, two things. One, when, when I get nervous, my voice kind of goes like this. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, you know, I've gotten older. And, and the third thing is, uh, listening to myself, I learn how to just kind of breathe better. I had help learning how to breathe better. And I learned how to bring my, my voice down a little bit more. In fact, you know, I'm not used to um, speaking in my... No- when I speak in front of a big crowd, even if I have a microphone, I tend to speak louder. Um, and when I speak louder, my voice changes because I actually have a very small voice. Mm. So, um, it, it, you know. Do you want to yell? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> it seems to me that much of what you did uh, early in your life, whether you, you look at them as good memories or bad, the actions you took one yeah. way or the other really defines you in, in a lot of ways. Being sensitive to what the issues were at the time and, and then getting a job where you had to be responsible to those issues uh, in radio right from the get-go uh, was fairly, you know, it seems, uh, is the word prescient that I want? That, that you know, that, that was where you were going to go with radio. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you start to sort of, you know, gain confidence in, in your voice and, and learn how to uh, take control um, with authority that you did not have as a teacher? Well, I felt so much more comfortable interviewing people. As soon as I started doing interviews, I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. Because it brought together everything I loved. It brought together the opportunity to like, read and actually talk to the authors. 
you know, which I, you know, I'd love to read and I love to talk about books. I got to do that. I got to talk to people about everything. I got to talk to musicians because I've always loved music. I, you know, eventually got to talk to filmmakers and I've always loved movies and stuff. I felt like immediately comfortable doing that. I didn't feel comfortable about my voice, so I just listened to myself selectively enough to try to learn from what I was hearing, but not so much that it would like panic me and make me think like, they allow me on the air? Right. Like, what are they crazy? Like, right. don't they listen? Mm -hmm. um, and also I worked with, there was a lot of peer pressure at the station. There were like so many talented people at the station where I started working. When, they, when you did something they didn't like, they would tell you. Yeah. They would definitely tell you. Would they tell you straight up or? Totally straight out. Uh-huh. What were some of those critiques? Oh, how bad some of our mixes were when we'd like mix music in to sound clever. Uh -huh. um, you know, production issues. Production issues, and then just kind of that it was boring. But you know, but it would get a little confusing because some of the people who would be criticizing us were also some of the men who were maybe say, still kind of uncomfortable with the whole idea of feminism, and we were a women's show, we were a feminist show. So some of the feedback you didn't know exactly how to take it, mm -hmm. but um, but it was good. It really, you know, it, it it was good to get tough feedback like that. And and when you took this step to, or when NPR took that, I mean, you were on the air for you know, over ten years before the show that everybody here you know, knows and loves. What, what, how did that evolve? How did that happen to where they were like, just Terry, every day, talking to people? Well, when I started the show, when I started hosting the show as a local show, it was three hours a day, five days a week. That's a lot of time. I have to assume that part of the interviewing thing was like, all right, I can fill 15 minutes yeah. if I get that guy in here because he never shuts up. Was there any of that going on? Well, you know, um, I had my standards when it was a local show and I was starting were really different. Um, Would that be, does, can you qualify that somehow? Well, um, First of all, it was a local audience, so I could talk a lot about local issues. Uh -huh. And and we we edit our, our stuff now, so we we want things to be tight. Um, and then it was, yeah, if it took a couple more minutes, we can be done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? there you go. That's yeah. radio thinking. Um, but but now it's it's like, no, what can I do of to course. get you to say what you're trying to say mm -hmm. is concise and interesting, a way as possible. Well, you have an amazing staff. I have an absolutely amazing group of people that I've How I long have you been with that producer? You said since 19... Danny and I have been together since 1978. And, you know, Amy's been on the show since 1985 or 6. Um, and Phyllis has been there since 87. Um, and, and these other, are the people that you... Th those are the people who have been there the, the longest, but... Um, every day. You've been on yeah. the air for like 40 years. Yeah, um, well, you know, because the show started as a local show in 75. It's a long time to uh, be doing something. At least I started hosting it since yeah, in 75. Yeah. But uh, it's a long time. And, <laughs> and, and, and now our staff is like, you know, we have people in their 20s, we have people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's like, so, it, so it's great. We're, we're like, I think age-wise, we're like really well represented. Yeah, but also you've like, you know, you've mastered and defined something that is uniquely yours that has been done by many people for centuries probably. And you set the standard for what an interview is and, and how to put one Thank together. Thank you for saying that. You know, on radio or anywhere. Thank you. Uh, and Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, uh, you, you know, you are 
you know, what m I think most people, you are home to most people when it comes to NPR, that, you know, your voice is, you know, more comforting than probably any voice in their lives, I would probably <laughs> say. That's really nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why I'm tearing up. But <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. <laughs> Can I just say something about you? What? I, I really, I just love your work so much. And, and I, I've, learned, I've learned from listening to you in your podcast because you're just so present. You're so in the moment with people and you have such interesting taste. You know, like, I, I love hearing you talk about the music that you love and you know, your interest in like Kerouac and that you know who Herbert Hunky is. And <laughs> yeah. you know, like you know all this stuff yeah. and you, you don't do it in a know-it-all way. You just kind of slip it in to get more out of them. Right. And um, <laughs> I, no, I mean that in the best sense. That's what an interviewer should do. No, 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 should, I, I know. Should, I, yeah, should, I, should I, yeah, I'm just like and, and the other thing is like, you're just no bullshit. You know, you're no bullshit in your comedy. And you're no bullshit when you're talking to other people. I don't think you are either. Oh, well, thanks. Terry Gross. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I just want to say the reason why I was comfortable enough to tell you and everyone else here the, <laughs> the things that I told you tonight is that I trust you and that you're no bullshit and I couldn't look you in the eye and not tell you the truth. Oh, thank you. <laughs> did, did, we, did, you, did you feel like this went well? I heard you ask that to, was it Alex Karpovsky? Maybe. And I thought, I'm surprised he asked that. Really? I thought it went, well, I thought you did great. I'm not going to evaluate myself. But, um, and I'm not going to ask the audience to do that Are either. Are you going to do it later, but, though? Um, I am not good at evaluating how I did, but, but I, I'm curious why you asked me that. Like, if it went well? Yeah, like what, what do you want out of that answer? <laughs> because I, I'll tell you that I thought you were great and that I said things that I don't usually say. So in that sense, you know, yeah, it went really well. But, <laughs> but um, I'm just curious why. Well, I think because you I, I don't know what I do uh, as, I don't consider myself really an interviewer necessarily. So you, you are, you're really good at well, it. Well, I'm a converse, I, I like to talk. Like, I, you know, with my producer, Brendan, like, I never say, like, how was the interview? I always say, how was the talk? It's still a talk to me, you, you know, and, and, I, and, and there's something about uh, what do I want out of that? I just want to make, you know, I want your approval, Terry. <laughs> You've got it big time. You've got Thank that you. big time. Terry Gross, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and Mark Maron. Yay! I'm a fan. I'm a total fan. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being here. We do have a, a few questions from the audience. Sure, in. yeah. Uh, every time I ask my 25-year-old son about a contemporary musician, he correctly assumes that I first heard them on Terry Gross. <laughs> How does Terry stay so tapped in, not just in music, but across the board? How do you decide who makes the final cut to get invited? Well, you know, we have producers who spend their time looking for guests. 
and my producers often give me new CDs that they'd like me, or downloads that they'd like me to listen to. Um, I get exposed to some new music at home, uh, you know, through, through my husband, who's always listening to interesting things and playing me things that he thinks I might like. And then I have my own taste that I'm always pursuing. We're all constantly consuming things, and then we have this marathon meeting on Fridays in which we talk through who do we really want to have on the show. Uh, dear Terry, have there been interviews where you felt where you felt the material or subject was beyond your scope of knowledge? If so, what do you do to remind yourself that you deserve to conduct these interviews with confidence? Uh, that's from Stephanie, and, and then in quotations it says, Hi, Mark. Um, <laughs> hi, Stephanie. Well, you know, um, I don't need to be an expert in things. I just need to ask decent questions. So um, I... I study as much as I can before an interview, but if it's a difficult subject, I'm going to assume most of my listeners don't know about it either, and it needs to be comprehensible to them. So I don't obsess on, oh, I'm not smart enough, or I'm not an expert in the field. Oh my God, if, if I didn't have my producer, Brendan, like, I, I think I'd get on mic sometimes and just go, hi, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> You need good people around you to sometimes, I don't know if you have this experience, but like I'm a pretty quick learner, but sometimes I can't necessarily wrap my brain around something the right way. And when you get the input from, you know, somebody who does the, the, some of the research for you, somebody you trust, and they just sort of make it understandable, you're like, oh, okay, I got that. <laughs> do you ever do that? I sometimes like go over the questions with like, I was just interviewing Matthew Weiner and there was so much I wanted to talk with him about and I couldn't figure out like, so which is the good stuff? I have way too much material. So I asked one of our producers, Lauren, I asked her like, please, like, let's just talk this over because I don't know. And it was very clarifying. Right, how to tighten it up. How to like, tighten I, it up. I had more trouble when I was doing politics, I needed to understand things and some things can get convoluted. And with politics, yeah, I often talk with like our producer Amy who does a lot of, you know, she does all the right. political stuff. It's like, help me understand this. bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Right? Can you say bullshit? In life? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So On the show? No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I said it before, remember? I said that, <laughs> I said it, that, that oh, you don't go, right. you don't like bullshit. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that's so weird. I was so busy being nervous and taking your compliment that I didn't even acknowledge the amazing Terry Gross cussing moment. <laughs> that's so stupid. We're going to edit that part <laughs> where I didn't remember her saying bullshit. Make note of that. Don't fall into a hole, Mark. Stay in. Stay in. <laughs> Present. What uh, would you be doing if you weren't doing this, Terry? Oh, God, I don't know. Good answer. You mean this being radio? Yeah, I have no idea. That's why I feel so lucky. I wouldn't be teaching. <laughs> Yet. You can always teach now, I think. If well, you now I could probably teach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you, that's that's the truth of it, though. Like you know, why you know when you do something for your whole life, it's like you, there comes a point where you're like, there's nothing else to do. What else? What? Well, I'm lucky. It's what I want to do. Exactly. I mean, like some people in radio would secretly like to be writing a novel or, you know, singing a musical comedy, but it's actually what I want to be doing is what I do. So. No musical comedy for you. Oh, if I had the talent. Right. Terry, you are my female crush. Who is your female crush? 
you know, also I'll be really honest, I don't, I don't think in crush terms. Mm. I just, like, some, I don't... Well, what woman do you want to have sex with? <laughs> no, but I, don't, I, I just, like, I, I don't, like, a lot of people go to, like, a movie and say, like, because, like, that guy's cute or that, that actress is hot. It's, that's, that's not... You don't do that? It's not... I, I, it's not... It's not the motivating thing for me. What is? Um, that when we, when I go to the movies and I see something great, it takes me out of my life and into somebody else's. No, but, but you're also the person that, you know, correctly identified S&M and Westerns. I have a hard time <laughs> believing <laughs> right. that you don't I go to movies point. sometimes. I see your point. Right. I see your point. You see my point. I see your point. So we're just going to let that... We're going to let that okay, go. Okay, all right. What is... <laughs> what do you hope your legacy will be after your career is over? Thank you, longtime listener Megan Graham. Our archive. I mean, I am so proud. We have, like, so many incredible people in our archive, living and dead. I mean, there are so many people who are no longer here, people including, like, Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, and it's like, we have nice interviews with them. Um, and I'm just so proud that, that those of us who work on the show manage to land people like that as guests. Yeah, it's an amazing gift that will never go away. It's a moment in time with, with yeah, a brilliant yeah. artist, and much of what is said is timeless. That's what I find most unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. great. Uh, this one says, I just wanted to steal the usher's pencil. Um, <laughs> did, you <ev> did you ever... Do you ever wish you had the flexibility the podcaster ha have in terms of content and format? Uh, in terms of, yeah. Really, um, though, it sounds to me like you, you, you run a tight ship. Well, I'd want it to be equally tight, but I wouldn't want to have to, like, have breaks for local oh, cutaways yeah, right. if we didn't have right. to, and, you know, reintroduce guests like we do on the Resets. air. Resets. Do the reset, because yeah. people are always coming in and tuning in on the radio, whereas if you're listening on the podcast, you're starting from the beginning. And then, you know, going to as yeah. far as you want to If you reset go. on the podcast, people will think you have a stroke or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I'd love to be able to not only myself use any language, but more importantly, have my guests use any language. Like, when I have a guest who's doing a reading from a novel, we have to sit like, okay, so you can't use this four-letter word. Which one? <laughs> I, I know, I... I I feel, I feel uncomfortable saying it in the context of this only because I don't want to have me saying a four-letter word go viral. And I know, I know how people are about that. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So, like, you don't want a little I don't Terry want that Gross, to be a thing. Uh, what is it? A, yeah, like, a GIF? Terry's, Terry does the F-bomb, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or, or if someone's exactly. shooting it, just you going, yeah. fuck, 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 yeah. fuck, 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 yeah. fuck. Yeah. I would yeah. like that so much. Yeah. <laughs> And that, that is exactly what, I, like, I don't want. Okay. So, because so, I, I know how that game is played. You It'd know be hilarious, I mean? though, right? So, it, it would be hilarious, but I'll, I'll pass on that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I'd love for my guests, I'd love to not have to, like, pencil out four-letter words when we're doing a reading right. from a book or say, like, can you, that, that, that great thing that you just said, can you say it without the expletive or, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I'd love to be able to talk more specifically about sexual issues. And I can't, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like a, what it's a part in particular. Of life. <laughs> it's not like I want to do pornography or something, but it's a part of life 
that we can't really talk about in the way that you can write about it or talk right, about it in a sure. podcast. How much, if any, only a couple more here, how much, if any, experience do you have with psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, and how has that, that impacted the way you conduct interviews? It's a, it's a good question. I've been seeing um, a therapist. I got into, into this through biofeedback. Do you know what that is? Yeah, so isn't that some hippie shit? No, it's actually not. It's, it's actually empirical stuff. Okay. Um, it's a way of kind of regulating your breathing in a way that dilates your blood vessels, which basically produces a relaxation response. Sure. So it's a way of learning. Wait. No, it's not gasping. It's like slow. It, it's slow inhaling and slow exhaling. Because I live in a, such a stressful atmosphere. And With all those records I, around? <laughs> I, I've always thought of myself as like feeding on adrenaline, but adrenaline is actually a very unhealthy... Draining. Cortisol. It, yeah, cortisol. It's yeah. really unhealthy. I know about that. So, so. Yeah. So yeah. I figured like I have to find a way to like neutralize all that cortisol. So I started doing biofeedback, and my biofeedback teacher is actually a fabulous therapist. And we started doing like more and more actual therapy and it's been just wonderful mm. for me. First of all, watching her work is really great because she somehow is always knows the right question to ask me. And she's, she's just so intuitive, she's so great. And I've learned so much about myself and um, it's, it's been just like super helpful. Good. It really, I, how I recommend been, it. How long have you been with it's her? It's about three, maybe four years. Pretty new. It's, it's pretty new. I'd never, I'd always thought like the last thing I have time for is talking to somebody. All I do is, you know, all day I prepare to talk to people and I hear them talk. I'm going home, you know, but it, it's so, it's just really stubborn. It's so valuable. Yeah. It turns out. Yeah. Good. Sounds yeah. like it blew your mind a little. It, it, it does. Yeah. It continues to. All right. Question from Mark Maron. Your early podcast focused more on your guest's professional trajectory. Your interviews have evolved into discussion around your guest's personal journeys. How did that evolution happen? Was it a change in you that brought that? Is that, that all one out? question? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And uh, you're really gonna focus more on your guest's professional journey. I don't know, I, I think that early on, right, and I don't wanna take up any um, time. No, 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 go ahead. Um, I think really if you listen to the first 100 or so episodes of WTF, it's me uh, inviting celebrities over to help me with my problems. So. <laughs> So talking about their professional was me learning how to not be bitter and jealous and learning how to listen and be happy for other people and then to maybe ask questions like, you know, how'd you get that thing? Who'd you call for that? So, you know, like... <laughs> and then eventually I, I, I grew... I, I think that through the podcast I did, like, get comfortable with myself and I had some self... Uh, I had some pride over, you know, about what I was doing and I felt like I was doing something relevant with my life and, and a lot of things definitely came together because of, of talking to people and I did, uh, I did get, you know, I, I found some self-esteem that I never had in a very genuine way and, and now I just have to stop the personal growth there before I, you know, fuck myself out of a job. <laughs> Oh, it's to, this one says, hey, Terry, how did Mark do tonight? Well, we, we, we found that out already. And uh, please, another round of applause for Terry Gross. And for Mark Maron. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, that's it. That was uh, one of the best nights of my life. You just heard, and uh, and I and I had a lovely time, and I believe that uh, Terry did as well. Uh, it seems like she did. I, I listened to her intro of me yesterday, and it was uh, made me feel good. Thanks to everyone from Fresh Air for helping to make this happen, especially Terry's executive producer, Danny Miller, and Fresh Air's technical director, Audrey Bentham, who made this recording sound great. Thanks also to the team from BAM, and a special thanks to Chris Bannon, who got the ball rolling on this. I'm not even going to plug myself. Today, it's been a long show, but you can go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs, and go to WTFPod.com slash calendar for the current tour schedule. Okay. I'm going to end this like uh, like an NPR show. Um, Boomer lives. <laughs>